Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Got a notice yesterday. The First Energy is putting a smart meter on my house. You think they're spending $60 million to upgrade the smart meters? <laughs> Just wondering. <laughs> this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer for a Friday. Happy Friday. Chris Happy Quinn Friday. here with Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi, who want to get going so we can get it done so they can get off to a June <laughs> weekend. And here, I will here. oblige them. Let's get to it. How many candidates have the Cleveland Indians considered in their quest for a new team name? Jane Cahoon, you're the big Indians fan, so you get to deal with this question. <laughs> yeah, news. I get to be the sports expert instead of Laura this time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, when I had heard that they had narrowed down the possibilities of the new team name, I was thinking like a dozen maybe or something. They actually have almost 1,200 on their list, 1,198 to be exact. And that's after something like 14 rounds of vetting. But don't be disappointed here. They didn't reveal the list, so I can't tell you any of them. I don't know if the Spiders or the Rockers or the Guardians or whatever is on the table at this point. But what I can tell you is well, that— Well, you got to think, if there's 1,200 <laughs> of them, that they're all on the table. Yeah, you would think. You you know, a reasonable person could assume, right? But anyway, th- what we do know is that this is a really deliberate process with— lots of steps, lots of research, and lots of people from different walks of life involved. But Thursday was the first time the team actually outlined a timeline of the process since they announced last summer that they were going to change the name. But they didn't really give a specific uh, timetable or date, but but just sort of a timeline. And um, this process involves several steps, listen and learn, announce, research, ideate, create, revise and finalize, and then finally unveil. Um, as far as what's taken place already, they've they've hosted a bunch of discussions on topics like everything from what it means to be a Clevelander to what baseball means to Northeast Ohio. They've done more than 140 hours of interviews with fans, community leaders, and team members, and more than 40,000 fans were surveyed during the process, and more than 4,000 fans signed up to uh, participate in the search. They they talked also to what they call local influencers, not just in the business or sports world, but people like artist Destiny Rodriguez, musician Stally, and celebrity chef Michael Simon. Uh, and they identified three key themes that they want this new name to reflect. One is connecting to the city of Cleveland, and then there's preserving the town's baseball history and uniting the community. So those are the three goals here that that name that name has to fit all three of those uh, goals. And um, Joe Noga reported that that we can assume that they're they're currently in in or close to the beginning of the create, revise, and finalize stage of the process. That's when they're supposed to draft creative options for logos and other brand elements and work with the MLB and trademark experts to make sure the process is legally sound. So 
we'll have to see what comes next. So I say, blah, blah, blah. And even though this is baseball, I'm throwing the flag. They come out (laughs) with this thing pretending to be transparent. They put out a timeline with no times. They put out that we have 1,200 names with no names. (laughs) If you're going to put out a thing to say, hey, community, we want to update you on where we stand, give the names. If you've got 1,200 names you're considering, put them out there. Why be secretive about the 1,200 names? I mean, really, if you look at what they put on their site, it's a whole lot of nothing. I mean, yeah. all that stuff about the the create and, and unve- it's all nonsense. It's like, what are the 1,200 <laughs> names you're considering? What, what are you doing to to cut them back? What you know, how do you get to 600 or 300 or 100? Why not put a couple of hundred out there so people can talk about it and set the date? I mean, it's hilarious. We said they gave out a timeline, but there's no times. It's like, yeah, well, it's yeah. not really a timeline. <laughs> I, I think this is utter BS from the Indians pretending to give us an update with no information in it. Shame on them. They should release what they've got. Let people talk about it. You know, I don't think we've gotten more email on any topic from our readers than this. For some reason, the readers think we have some say in this matter. And so they constantly (laughs) send us their suggested names, sometimes their suggested logos. What that says, though, everybody feels a piece of this. So give it to them. Let them engage. I I just, does anybody disagree with this? No, this is Laura Johnston. I, I think you're completely right. Everybody has an interest in this. They feel such an ownership of the team. And I think, you know, they they want to say it. And, and that's what the Indians said that they're trying to do. But you're right. We haven't seen these interviews that they did with people. We haven't, we don't know what the suggestions are. Honestly, I think if you got our newsroom together and tried to come up with 1,200 names, I, I don't know that we could do it. That is a whole, I mean, are you just going to start throwing out random verbs? Like, I don't know. I got like 1,200 emails from readers with different ideas for names. They all think we have a say. This is Layla Tazi. Don't you think that once they narrow it down, they'll they'll engage the public a little more? I mean, 1,200. How are you going to engage the public on 1,200 options? Why not, Layla? Why not fire the imagination Uh. with a bunch of ideas you've not seen? I I, or or look, say we have 1,200, but let's face it, 900 of them are just stupid. Here's the 300 (laughs) that we're calling it down from. Yeah, 900 are stupid. A hundred are probably a variation of the Indians. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't totally clear on this timeline, as we just discussed. My understanding was they had 1,200 and they have narrowed it down to, I don't know, a question mark number at some point. But I'm wondering, you know, the zoo always does this, like vote for your favorite name. But maybe the Indians don't want us to vote because what if we vote for something they don't want? I I don't know how much. But people are going to do that anyway. So get ahead of it. Let them talk. Talk about it. Let them let them see what you're considering. Do it in the open. Look, this isn't any other business. This is a sports team that has gotten a great deal of subsidies, frankly, from the taxpayer because the taxpayer feels an ownership of this team. It's part of the culture. To deprive them of that process is just stupid. It, it's bad public relations, you know. And and why come out with what they came out with yesterday at all? If you want to be secretive, yeah. just be secretive. But because to put out this pseudo press about release, it. I mean, I feel I like mean, it is. It's just like a ploy to be like getting people excited about the Indians. Although uh, I guess there is a lot of blowback that you get too. I don't think this is the conversation they were hoping to launch. <laughs> I mean, as a fan, I I I ran to that headline to see what the 
1,200 names were, and it, it was a disappointment. It you was. Know? And the, the fact that they could be this far along in the process and maybe only have it narrowed down to that is kind of weird, I think. Look, if this is the judgment they're showing in their process, we can only <laughs> we can only dream of how bad the name might ultimately be. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Where does Greater Cleveland stand compared to the rest of the state when it comes to registering to win the Vaximillion sweepstakes? And what do we know about the latest winners? Leila Tassi, we talked a week or so ago about how much we wanted to know the geographic breakdowns of how people entered this thing. We got them. What did we see? Well, we saw that Greater Cleveland is leading the state in the percentage of adults who signed up for Vaximillion. About 34% of adults in Cuyahoga Lake Lorraine Summit, Medina Portage, and Geauga County signed up, and that's five percentage points higher than the 29% average in the rest of Ohio's counties. Of course, we were interested in seeing this data because two of the four winners so far are Northeast Ohio natives with connections to Shaker Heights and Mayfield. So we got the numbers, and Rich Exner cross-referenced them with census data on the numbers of adults in each county, and we discovered that, you know, Medina County, for example, led our region with 39% of adults signed up, but number one in the state was Delaware County with 47%. Cuyahoga was 13th in the state with 33%. And of course, the lowest participation in Vaximillion matches up with the counties with the lowest vaccination rates, which also happen to be Trump country, um, where they, uh, you know, don't really believe in any of this. <laughs> so... Okay, but let, let, me, let, me, let me ask you a question. I, yeah, the, the bottom, the bottom feeders, the, they don't trust the vaccine, the, whatever. <laughs> not, it's, it's dumb, but they'll get the coronavirus. But for the for the populous counties, you know, you could read Northeast Ohio's leading the pack as we lead the state in desperation. I mean, we're so, we're so desperate to win a million dollars that we all flock to it. That could be a bad sign, less than a good sign, or it could be a sign that we all got vaccinated because we're smart and don't want to get sick. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> right, so, mean, so I don't see it as a negative at all. <laughs> so, so as for won? our winners, you know, the million dollar winner is this week was 40-year-old Jonathan Carlisle of Toledo. He delivers packages for Amazon on. He and his girlfriend and their children want to use the money to buy their forever home. And I'm so pleased to say he decided to get the vaccine because of this sweepstakes. I don't know why, but for some reason, that fact makes me feel good about this whole thing. It validates the vaccine for me that somebody actually felt prompted to go get it because, you know, he said, you know, that he intended to, but he was dragging his feet. I think that's exactly the person that this was was designed for. And so, and the scholarship winner is 17-year-old Zoe Vincent of Mayfield. She wants to go to medical school and become a pediatrician. She's considering Ohio State and Case Western for that. And she told Laura Hancock that she actually contracted COVID this past winter and that it was the sickest she had ever been. That experience really motivated her to get vaccinated as soon as she became eligible. You know, I, I got to say, so far, the winners have been perfect. Almost, Almost too, too perfect. perfect. Yeah, I exactly. mean, they all they all come across as worthy and adorable and ambitious and good citizens. I'm wondering what would happen if someone with like a long criminal history gets drawn. How would that press conference go? Like, what if Jimmy Demora wins or something? He's gotten so lucky that he's given millions away to these really deserving Ohioans. But this feels a lot like 
Willy Wonka's golden tickets, you're bound to get like a Veruca salt among the winners, right? Like somebody that everyone hates. So now I'm now I'm hoping for that. We need a little drama in this. Although maybe this is just a sign that Ohio is filled with really good souls and the, the odds are you're going to get really worthy people. I agree. I mean, this is like the best public relations. Mike, the one really has been this thing. once a week. He gets to stand up there with these adorable, good faith people talking about the, the coronavirus vaccine. It, and it'll be and everyone's story has been a little different in, in just good ways. You know, it's just I don't know. <laughs> and the only good, thing that could have made it better yesterday is if he said, I'm going to get my forever home and then we're going to get our forever puppy. <laughs> oh. made it really hard. <laughs> okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does the Ohio Transportation Chief think of the Cleveland Browns' vision for the lakefront, which includes a massive land bridge connecting downtown to Lake Erie over railroad tracks and a highway? as well as the closure of a significant highway ramp. Laura Johnston, the Browns unveiled this a couple of weeks ago. It is a grand vision, much better than anything else we've seen for the lakefront. The only the only thing lacking in it is it doesn't close Burke Lakefront Airport, which I don't get. But what did the Ohio Transportation Chief say in a hearing yesterday about the plan? Yeah, Director Jack Marchbanks praised this lakefront plan. He, he said that um, it was a bold vision and it's getting rave reviews. And think about it. This is obviously not just a development plan, but this would go over the shoreway and actually require closing a ramp to the shoreway, which there was some concern when this first got introduced that, you know, some commuters would be against it. We don't normally close highways, right? We add ramps. But, you know, March Peggs had this great quote. He said, as my late mother-in-law said, if you're going to do anything, be bold and imaginative. Why be tepid? And this plan is not tepid. And it, it re-envisions downtown connected to the lake. This is, um, and he actually compared it to St. Louis, which built a green park over the highway to connect downtown to the um, arch. And, and you've so been there, right? You I have been it. there, walked across it. And uh, that's a little different because you're you're getting to the Mississippi River. There's no development down there other than the, you know, the arch is there and you have some steamboats. You're, you're not connecting it to um, apartments or restaurants or anything like that. So it feels a little different. It's part of a national park. But but it's an interesting comparison and it's nice to know that we feel like we're being bold and visionary here and for, you know, we're getting some applause for it. Well, it's the Browns that came through. <laughs> no, really. We've it's had, true. you know, up until now we were talking about some lame little bridge going down there that nobody had the money for. And then what was there forever? We were talking about a Superman statue and things like that. <laughs> this is, this is visionary. This is legacy. This changes the, the way downtown is and it's based on history because there was a temporary land bridge during one right. of the one of the years where they great had the lakes fair. exposition yeah yeah so it could be good i just don't understand why if you're talking about the lakefront you're not doing the full thing closing burke lakefront airport that's that's well, fully half of downtown cleveland's lakefront it's completely wasted it could be the jewel of the united states for a lakefront park but nobody talks about it I, d I don't disagree with you, but the Browns don't have, you know, they don't have, they don't own it. If Jackson is still mayor. He said, we're not touching it. I mean, if you put that, that out now, I mean, you're just asking for him to stomp on it. I, I think, and besides it is separate. I mean, that is a separate parcel of land. And while it would be great if it all worked together, I don't think you have to wait for Burke to close and do something with that to do something over by Brown stadium. I, I mean, a land bridge does not go to Burke. 
Although it would get you closer. It would to get that you much we closer. There. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Frank Jackson has made clear he's not going to do it, but he'll be gone in six months. And, and so maybe, already, maybe. well, we've asked everybody who's announced they're running and there's a million of them what they would do. And some are very emphatic. Justin Bibb, close it immediately. Kevin Kelly has waffled um, and not come out firmly saying he would close it. So Mark won against Kevin Kelly. Can I, can I add one more thing ahead, on Lord. this, Landbridge? So actually, we, it, this fact that the ODOT um, is approving it is really good news because Cleveland's seeking this $5.6 million grant from this advisory council. And uh, so, I mean, maybe we'll be able to get it. I mean, that would be really good news. Yeah, this is this is a cool plan. I hope, we, I hope it doesn't hit too much opposition from Westside commuters worried about the closing of the uh, entrance ramp. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does one of Marsha Fudge's former colleagues in Congress want her to do about marijuana in public housing now that Fudge heads up the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development? Jane Kuhn, it's really ridiculous the way public housing treats people who are caught with marijuana offenses, especially since marijuana is now legal in some form or another in more than half of the U.S. states. So what's going on here? What's the lobbying on Marsha Fudge? Yeah. So the former colleague is Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's a non-voting member of Congress who represents Washington, D.C., where marijuana is legal. She wants Fudge to use her what she called executive discretion to not enforce this federal prohibition against marijuana use in federally assisted housing in jurisdictions where marijuana is otherwise legal. And as you said, the problem here is because marijuana is illegal under federal law, the current HUD policies bar users from from federally assisted housing, and landlords can evict residents from this housing for using it, even if it's even if it's legal where they live. So uh, Norton wrote a letter to Fudge, and she noted, as you did, that uh, adult use of marijuana or medical marijuana is legal in 36 states and the District of Columbia, and over 90% of Americans back legalized medical marijuana. Um, now, Congress has blocked the Justice Department from using federal money to, to keep local jurisdictions from implementing their medical marijuana laws. And uh, Norton says, you know, HUD should do the same thing by not enforcing this federal marijuana prohibition. So she says smoking marijuana in federally assisted housing should be treated the same as smoking tobacco uh, in federally assisted housing. But anyway, we, we did not get a response from Fudge on this yet. HUD says they received Norton's letter and, and they're preparing a response. But, uh, but in the past, hasn't she supported yeah, legalization yeah. efforts of some sort? Yeah. Sabrina Eaton noted in her story that when Fudge was in Congress, she co-sponsored legislation to decriminalize marijuana and to allow banks to serve cannabis businesses in states where it's legal, um, as well as a resolution calling for an end to the war on, on drugs. So, you know, she's got some history there with this, and um, we'll, we'll have to see how she responds. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is the head of the Cleveland Police Union calling for the city safety director to resign and for an end to the consent decree that has made the department more professional and community-oriented? Leila Tassi, Carrie Howard is hands down the best public safety director I've seen in 25 years. He follows a long line of losers. So I'm not really that surprised that the police union wants him gone because he's a disciplinarian. Right. And, you know, the consent decree has always been kind of a powder keg for the police union. But this past week... 
police brass announced a string of officer firings for a variety of infractions, and that just really set off the union leadership. They want Carrie Howard to resign. They want the Justice Department out of Cleveland. Cleveland Police Patrolman Association President Jeff Fulmer at a news conference called Howard a puppet for the Justice Department. He said that the harsh discipline we've been seeing is motivated by Howard's own sense of self-preservation after a new mayor is elected, that he's just trying to jockey for a job in that administration. And, you know, in, in Howard's first year as safety director, he fired 13 officers in different misconduct cases. And Fulmer said the union appealed or will appeal 11 of those. The union filed 80 grievances out of 120 disciplinary cases in the last year. The appeals are in all, all various stages. And, you know, the union just hates the consent decree. They hate discipline. They hate being governed by high standards. This they is hate accountability. That, they do. They, they don't want to be held accountable for when they screw up. That's the that's what's going on here. And for years they weren't. Right. And this is this is a union that continues to vehemently defend and fight for the job of the officer who killed 12 year old Tamir Rice. They exactly. they blame this. They blame the city's high violent crime rate on the consent decree. They argue that it hamstrings their ability to do their job. And, you know, please, I don't know who's advising them, but here's a little advice for free. If you want the Justice Department <laughs> off your back. Give constitutional policing a try. Do your job. And for heaven's sake, zip your lips and stop having press conferences to call attention to all the rotten apples. And the fact that the culture of policing in Cleveland is completely contaminated. Well, you know, I mean, Frank Jackson stood by uh, Mike McGrath, the safety director for years, claiming that he was a disciplinarian and he wasn't. And the Justice Department finally came out and laid him bare saying he's just right. a disaster. Carrie Howard is the guy Frank Jackson was describing when he was describing Mike McGrath. He is holding people to account. And what the police don't get, you hold that press conference, the public is not with you. The public right. is with the city for holding the bad apples to account. It's just a complete disconnect from public sentiment. And, and when you look at these individual cases, they're bad. They're really bad. I mean, there are guys that just decided not to investigate crimes who were detectives. Right. You can't do that. So right. I hope Carrie Howard sticks around for the next administration. It is the first time in my 25 years here that I think you have a public safety director who is doing the job that they're supposed to do. Right. And I just think if, if your goal is to be out from underneath a consent decree, this was not the way to do it. No, I mean, no. why would you do this? You're just constantly drawing attention to all the things that still need to be corrected in your department. Maybe there's an election coming up soon and the head of the union's worried he's going to get voted out because he's not fighting this stuff hard enough. And so he wanted this show strong. Hell, we could have Steve Loomis back for another round. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did a Youngstown doctor seduce young girls in such a way as to disgust the federal judge who sentenced him to 22 years in prison? Laura Johnston, we don't often talk about sex trafficking cases, but man, this is really sinister. This is really gross. Um, so the federal prosecutors called this Northern Ohio's largest trafficking case in terms of the number of juvenile victims. It's, uh, there's a tip in 2019 that Ashland police got about a man that had sex with a young girl. 
this man is Albert Ayad Toss. He's 53 and an ER doctor. And according to his plea agreement, he used Snapchat to contact girls ages 12 to 15 to arrange meetings at coffee shops. And then he would pay them 100 bucks for that. He later picked them up, took them to hotels in Ashland, Fairlawn, and Columbus, and paid the girls as much as $500 for sex. He gave them marijuana and alcohol. He bought lingerie and sex toys. They weren't even old enough to come into the adult store for him to buy them there. I mean, this is 12. It is disgusting. And the judge sentenced him to 22 years in prison, fined him $50,000, and said that this detailed planning was disgusting. He apparently budgeted $2,000 a month just to do this. So the scope is insane. $2,000 a month to seduce young girls. Yeah, that was the number that stood out. So he's doing some serious time. Uh, It was one that really stood out from the normal kind of sentencings we see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did we learn from a question and answer session with Jeff Johnson, who seeks to win the 11th congressional seat in a special election? Jen Cahoon, he's a real long shot, clearly. Nina Turner is is the the favorite, and Chantel Brown is probably next. Jeff Johnson's pretty far down the line, and he's run for a lot of stuff and lost. What does he say? Well, first, let me just say that this week, Seth Richardson, our chief political reporter, has been publishing a series of these Q&As. So just to put this in context, he did them with the what we would call the six most prominent Democratic candidates for the seat. There, There are 13 Democrats and two Republicans running, but the seat is so heavily gerrymandered toward Democrats that the winner of the August 3rd primary is pretty much a shoe in. But anyway, Johnson is well-known in Cleveland, even though, as you say, he might be a long shot here. He served on city council and in the state legislature. He ran for mayor the last time around. Uh, And it's also well-known that in 1998, he had his lowest point where he was convicted on federal charges of using his office for personal gain. But but he redeemed himself after that, after spending nine months in prison and made this come back. So now he's the Cleveland Housing Court Administrator. So I've just set the stage there. Sorry to be so windy. But uh, one of the, you know, Seth asked just a whole bunch of different questions, went really in depth on the issues. So Johnson said he does not support Medicare for all, but he supports the Affordable Care Act with a public option. Now, that's kind of at odds with Nina Turner, who, as you said, is regarded as a front runner in this race, who strongly supports Medicare for all. But Johnson seems to favor a more incremental approach, including like lowering the Medicare age to 55. On uh, criminal justice, he doesn't believe in using the term defund the police. He said he thinks we go too far at times with our language, but he agrees that some of the principles uh, of this recent movement, namely the redistribution of resources, and he thinks we should get rid of private prisons and legalize marijuana. Uh, He supports earmarks. Not all the candidates in this race do. And uh, like most of them in the race, he wants to invest in education, child care, and tackle poverty. And Chris, I saved your favorite here for last. He thinks Burke Lakefront Airport should be closed (laughs) so that the lakefront can be developed for the benefit of citizens. And not all the candidates, we got to give Johnson some credit, not all the candidates gave such a definitive answer to that question. They kind of like, well, we got to study this, la, la, la. But anyway, there's a lot more in here that I 
we don't have time to go into. But as I said, Seth went really in depth here on these questions. I just don't understand why he's running because he keeps running for stuff and losing. He, he, he knows he really doesn't have a chance here. So why go through it? Why not just be the court administrator, do, do good there? It's public service. It's a, it's a good role. Is he just that desperate to be in elected office again? It'll take these long. <laughs> you know, there, I think there's quest? more than one person in this race who just run every time. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just, they just run for everything. That's strange. So. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Will students have to wear masks at school this summer or in the fall? Leila Tassi, you got this one because you got a student in your house. And yes. I bet you're wondering how this will work. Yeah, you know, this this was a really great story by our reporter, Alexis Oatman. A, a lot of school districts, it seems, have decided to take the wait and see approach for the fall. Alexis talked to a bunch of superintendents who said they're cautiously optimistic, but they don't want to nail down a mask policy too soon because, you know, this virus has been pretty unpredictable. So just a sampling of some of the things she found in Avon Lake, for example, no no masks for students and staff in the fall. The superintendent said that they'll be as normal as possible there. In Beechwood, masks aren't required during summer programs if staff and students can prove that they're vaccinated. If that works out, that policy, they, they might consider it for the fall. In Rocky River, masks will be optional next year. And in Warrensville, masks will still be required until the student body is largely vaccinated. But, you know, I'm just wondering why there's so much variation in these policies. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. The CDC says you can go without a mask if you have been vaccinated. Masks are still encouraged for those who haven't been vaccinated. And last I heard, kids under 12 are not eligible to be vaccinated. So that seems really inconsistent with some of these policies. And, you know, in my district, which is Bay Village Schools, they ended their mask mandate for summer programs, making them optional, not days later. I received an email from the district's COVID case coordinator sent to all the families and staff in the district, and it said this, please be aware that COVID-19 is still circulating in our community. Please continue to follow all masking and social distancing guidelines, especially if you or your family member are not vaccinated. And that was days after they said, oh, summer school and summer programs, masks optional. So that I talk about mixed messages. I mean, that email is so inconsistent with the CDC guidelines. Or, or actually, that email is consistent with the CDC, but the, the district's policy is not. And I yeah. want to know, why why are these districts coming up with such wildly divergent masking policies, many of which fly in the face of CDC guidance? Do you think What's it might on? be that adults are ready to be done with the masks and they're thinking oh, about course. it in adult terms instead of in terms of the children? So the people that are thinking yes. most about the children are probably saying, you know, the kids should wear masks and their parents should set an example by wearing masks. But in the districts where they're not thinking about the kids as much, they're thinking, I'm sick of masks. I want to be done with masks. I think, and of course, we're sick of everyone sick of masks. But you know what? These kids have been through so much this past year for us, for their elders. They have done e-learning. They have I mean, they've suffered mightily through that. And it wasn't, it was to protect everyone around them. And now no one cares about protecting them to the, <laughs> to I, the bitter end. I mean, I that is here? so disappointing to me. <laughs> Laura Johnston. So I, I was really shocked when Layla told me that Bay Village wasn't going to require the masks for summer programs. And then lo and behold, my district does the same thing, right? And, but I talked to some pediatricians last week about this. And I was like, this seems insane to me. And they said, 
you know, as long as the cases are low in your area, which I think we've had one case in our schools in May, that was the last one I heard about, and that they've updated the HVAC systems, it's and the parents of those kids are vaccinated, it's not a huge concern. But I, I am with Layla, like it, it makes me feel a lot better to send my kid off with a mask, even though like my 10 year old wears that one, you know, like the gator, which I think, the, you know, early science was like, this is not any more <laughs> helpful than not wearing a mask. But it's just this idea that they have some protection because they're not vaccinated. But also, like, did anyone think that cases might be low because they're wearing masks? I well, mean, that's very good. I mean, yes. We'll we, we don't know who's who's what parents are vaccinated or not. I've seen all kinds of Facebook pages popping up of people who are so anti-vaccine in our communities. So well, time will tell whether there is a surge among kids with oh, all of the so changes. Upsetting. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We went a little long today. People had a lot to say. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Most of us will be back on Monday. Layla, I think you're taking the day off and you'll be back Tuesday. Yes. See you then. See you then. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>